Hi guys, welcome back to Humanity Unlocked. Thanks for joining us. If you're a first time listener, my name is Kimberly Diet, and I'm the host of this show. Before I bring Katira on today, I'd like to start this episode by doing a quick recap after our first full month as a live podcast. My goal in starting this podcast has been to bring awareness to pervasive and in some instances stigmatized topics by bringing on guests to tell the untold side of their stories. Some of the topics we've covered thus far have been homelessness, self-sabotage, crime, chronic illness, alcoholism, childhood sexual abuse, religion and faith, infertility, trauma, and both divorce and child custody. The topics are all pretty heavy, which is kind of the point, right? So, um, but the reason most people don't tell their stories in their entirety to their peers, their neighbors, their coworkers, friends, family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is because these are heavily emotionally heavy, emotionally charged, heavily emotionally charged, one of those two, topics that most people well, maybe not most, but we'll say many people don't have the emotional bandwidth to know how to understand these issues well enough to respond appropriately. I'm sure we've all had friends and heard stories about friends who sort of overshare their problems. I've encountered those friends. I've been that friend at times. But often what we find is that this behavior gets you uninvited to gatherings or ghosted or gossiped about. You can be labeled as attention-seeking or hyperbolic, which, you know, isn't fun. So what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us two things, or one of two things. We either learn to never ever speak of these things again, because you know, how embarrassing. Uh, We make ourselves vulnerable and it gets, you know, leveraged against us. Or we double down, which is what I remember doing, not in person with my peer group so much, but the really mature way, which obviously is to do it passive aggressively through social media and Facebook memories won't let me forget it. So neither of these responses is ideal, shutting down and never uttering another word about our issues for fear will be talked badly about and doubling down with the strength of a thousand men that just makes us seem desperate, which to be honest, I think I was, I was desperate for people to understand me. Um, So if these aren't ideal, which options or what options does that leave us with? Because the fact of the matter is it's a rare friend who can handle the level of heaviness in some of these stories without judgment and without let's be honest without reacting awkwardly because the truth is nobody gets taught what to say or how to react when a friend comes to you with trauma instability or just plain rough upbringing that led to a dysfunctional adult life so i feel it's important for us to recognize what's behind someone's motives to tell their stories on a podcast some of them it's just purely and simply to raise awareness and to also help others who are listening to listening who find themselves in similar shoes others it's therapeutic telling your story to someone who is holding all of this space in the world for you feels wonderful and the therapeutic benefits of that can be felt lastly they tell their stories because they plain and simple just want to be understood they want to feel understood they feel like if i can just tell my story with all the context it will make all the sense and i will make sense and i will be validated and vindicated and all of those things it's a terrible feeling to know you're being misunderstood it's like getting kicked when you're down and It's adding insult to injury and, you know, all of the euphemisms. So the aim has always been to be that safe place for guests to tell their stories without judgment on a shareable platform that can offer a level of of acknowledgement that serves both the guest and the listener. Having said all this, I am recognizing that there is a need for balance to offset some of the heavier conversations we're having. So I have decided to incorporate some future episodes that will feature myself with a co-host discussing just a very general topic whatever topic is at hand that day topics like relationships friendships motherhood dating and i'm also going to throw in some deeper philosophical discussions that we all know i love so much as far as who my co-host will be i have a good core group to pick from but anyone can inquire about this option to co-host i'm going to be honest though and say that i will be a tad more discerning with who i have on as a co-host obviously we have to have some good conversational chemistry and all of that good stuff We are booking these episodes now, so if this is something you're interested in, you can email me at Kimberly at HumanityUnlockedPodcast.com, and we can see if it's a good fit. So with that, before we introduce today's episode, I want to thank all of our listeners for hanging with me this past month. I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast as much as I am, but please sit tight because we're just getting started. Lots of fun stuff is in the works, and you need to stay tuned. So... 
Okay, that's all for my recap. I'm going to toss the mic over to Katira Ross because today she's going to open our episode. Katira, you are up next. Thank you, Kim. Um, well, hello and welcome back to Humanity Unlocked. Um, again, my name is Katera Ross, and today I will be your host for this very special episode. Um, today I will be talking to your regular co host, Kimberly Daya. I thought it was important for her listeners to get to know her because, just like her other guests, she also has had an important story to share that involves her battle with medical issues, um, which was one of the driving factors that led her decision to start this podcast. So let's welcome Kimberly to the studio. Yay! So glad that you're here. Welcome me. Um, so Kimberly, um, tell us a little bit about your early life and your upbringing. Um, I know you were born in Orange County, California, yeah. and then you had moved to Roseville, California at the age of three years old. And then kind of go into and tell us a little bit about your upbringing with your parents and their yeah. relationship. Um, First of all, I have to tell all the listeners this is incredibly, it's not uncomfortable, but it's it's strange and feels weird to be in the um, interviewee's chair. So I'm going to do my best. I don't have any notes in front of me. I've given Katira my full history. So we are starting from the beginning. I did grow, I do, I, I was born in Orange County. My parents moved to Northern California, um, I believe in the Citrus Heights area. And then when they split up, I, I was three when they split up and then we moved to Roseville. Um, we moved into a um, like a more it was well it was government subsidized housing there's no easy way nice way to put that but you know my mom was a single mom obviously at that point and um, I lived in you know an apartment and in Roseville if anybody anybody from this area knows Roseville's you know it's a nice area it's like right on the edge of Granite Bay and um, so you know I was the poor kid but but strangely, like, I didn't really feel poor because I had such a great home life. So, but it is like this dichotomy between like having a great home life and having wonderful parents. But like, you realize that you're different, you know, and when you're in a town like, like Roseville, like had I been in any other town, it wouldn't have even, it wouldn't have even occurred to me that maybe I had less. So, um, how, how much further am I going on this part of my story? What's the next question, Katira? Um, so talk about like, I mean, your parents' dynamics with the relationship, you know, they um, ended up divorcing. Yes. So, okay. Yeah. Um, so my parents split up when I was three. Um, they're friends to this day. Um, I've never seen my parents fight. Um, my mom, my dad was married a few different times. My mom was always friends with my stepmoms. They always loved my mom. My mom loved them. My mom was at all of the weddings, I think, <laughs> that my, my dad's. Um, we spent holidays, all of us together, and that was sort of the role models that I had as, as parents, as, as parents who were di divorced. And um, my dad didn't really have, we didn't have a custody arrangement with him. He was recovering alcoholic. He got sober when my mom was pregnant with me. And so with, with recovery, um, you really have to spend so much time, a lot of time is dedicated to that. And from a very young age, I understood the importance of that and I never really took it personally um, that there wasn't like this set in stone schedule where I saw my dad like every other weekend, but there was an understanding that he was there when, when and if we needed him. Um, he provided for us to be a child support, bought me school clothes, you know, holidays, all the things, birthdays, I had parties at his house, you know, birthday parties and stuff. So. But there wasn't like a regular custody arrangement. Um, I wasn't super close to them. I'm actually closer with them now. Um, and I commend him for the amount of time, you know, he has dedicated to his recovery. Um, so he's doing quite well. Um, as far as my mom goes, she grew up in a very stable home. And her parents, <laughs> it's funny because like, so my, my grandmother is from Utah and was raised Mormon, like huge Mormon family. My mom was raised Mormon, then my, my parents got married. I think my dad converted. Neither one of them are no longer Mormon. They did not raise us Mormon. But um, I did, well, they, I think they kind of started to. I got baptized um, Mormon and then went, but I think when my parents split up, I'm getting all of the timeline wrong. But basically, I think when my parents split up, my mom, it was kind of strange for my mom to be going to church without my dad. So she kind of left, she left the religion. Um, our family is still very much a part of it um, and so went to more non-denominational uh, churches and um, a lot of wonderful people. I just, I don't think it was a right fit um, later. 
So um, my mom had great role models for parents. Her mom was the first higher up manager. There's a more sophisticated term for that. I just can't think of what mm-hmm. it is for at Seas Candy ever. Like, first like executive. For, or, thank you. Mm-hmm. First executive manager at Seas Candy. Her mom was my grandmother. Um, so she's like, if you even go into Seas Candy now and like mention her name, they're like, oh yeah, she was, you know, she's very well known and she's been passed since I was four. Um, and my grandfather worked for the government, um, for the, for the state, for Ronald Reagan's office, um, when he was governor. And, um, so they were married until they both passed and my mom grew up, you know, dinner was made at a certain time every night and the house was a certain way. She had chores. I mean, it was very structured, like leave it to beaver family. Only her mom was very ambitious and her mom worked. So my mom, even being a single mom living in the neighborhood we lived in where you didn't see a lot of families like that my mom still like really created a home environment that was modeled after her parents so we had dinner every night you know we had bath time bedtime homework it was very structured and she it was like a well-oiled machine that my mom ran and all on her own and um we were very very close-knit family i've always been close with my mom um and I've modeled my parenting after my mom, and I know we're going to go on to talk about my story with with my son's dad. But mm-hmm. I modeled that after my parents, so it was a it was a sol- it, you know difficult in terms of like the dichotomy of living in Roseville, but um, a solid upbringing nonetheless, I would say. And I want to go back a little bit too when you talked about um, your father being a recovering alcoholic. Got he got really involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you also kind of got involved with them because he would take you to their meetings, to their dances. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So from a young age, you know, when we go to see my dad, it was, we would stop off at not, I mean, I perceived it as stopping off at AA meetings, like on the way to go to dinner or on the way to go wherever. And so we would, you know, I was around it from a young age, not like often, but several times a year. Um, And there was an understanding from, from a young age, you know, about addiction. And so my brother and I are both, were both very aware of um, how that could be. And, you know, just hearing people's stories um, at a very young age, there was just this awareness of like being careful around substances. Um, so as I got older, like I would say 13 and, and above, my, my dad was married to someone who she just took uh, I mean, they were all amazing women, but this particular woman, when I was a teenager, she took an interest in me and like doing my hair and makeup and like would buy me clothes and she would take me to the A dances and the, and the camp outs and the picnics. And so there was just this, there's a community within AA that I really respect and admire. There, there was this Java City downtown. I want to say it was on J Street or Capitol or one of those downtown. And I just remember looking forward to, you know, when I go to my dad's house, we'd always end up at java city which i think might be out of business now but and they would just all sit around drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and it was just like the 80s and that's what you did for fun i mean you were you were a covering addict and so you found other ways to have fun and that's kind of how i think how i learned you know that you don't have to drink to it you know have a you know enjoy yourself on the weekends yeah so and then you you know growing up in roseville too you went to a pretty affluent you know high school oakmont high school um and you you know didn't have a lot of things growing up like uh, most kids that you went to school with but your mom just kind of took in some of these kids where they they didn't have attention from their parents and they would come to your mom and and they'd be able to confide in her and you know yeah yeah so um it's so funny because like at the time you don't really realizing it but looking realize it but looking back you really see it uh you know now that i'm a mom but it was almost like I guess I did see it, but I didn't put the weight on it that I put on it now. So obviously we didn't have much, you know, it was welfare, government subsidized housing, my mom, single mom, we just didn't have a lot. I mean, it was fine. We had what we needed, but not a cent more, you know? (laughs) So um, these, but my mom was like an incredible mom, like just such a good mom. And all of my friends loved my mom and they would like comment on her as a parent. And I'm like, she's a mom. like okay you know you're so used great to that. Yeah. yeah like i loved her and i appreciate her i was very very close to her but to me that's normal right that's mm-hmm. what a mom is well a lot of my 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 friends um they would have so much like they'd have the beautiful homes and they had brand new cars and they turned 16 and they grew up in the in the nice neighborhoods and, the nice, and, clothes n- and nice clothes mm-hmm. nice vacations like 
all those things, but they were not close with their parents. Um, nothing against their parents. I know how hard parenting is, and I even see it with my own children's friends. Like, it is so hard to be um, a very engaged parent and also have a very successful career, especially when your kids right. are teenagers. So um, even at the time, I mean, I have empathy, empathy for it. I had empathy for it then. I have empathy for it now. Um, but these kids would have the world at their fingertips, but yet all they wanted was like connection with like a mom and they'd want to come over for dinner. Is your mom making dinner? Can I come over for dinner? Like, do you think that your mom would let me spend the night? Like the, and I'm like my house, like I will tell you a story where, oh my gosh, this is such a horrible story. Um, I don't know if I told well, you, now you have to Katera, share. I'm not sure if I told you this. So the, one of the most popular girls in school like we took dance class together and um we'd like carpool you know and she was gonna spend the night at my house and I like was really excited and I you know got my room all ready and everything and she was really pretty and she was really talented at dance and everything and um she was super accepting of me and everything didn't judge me for how I lived or where I lived and so she came over and we pulled out the so we had and our back door was like there was a gap in the weather stripping <laughs> so mice would get in this is a terrible story and like we had a clean house it was not that it was the quality of the rental like by then we had moved to a, a this little teeny tiny rental home mm -hmm. and um there was this gap in the weather stripping and these mice would get in and um we'd have glue boards just everywhere every you know to, to catch them and um we went to pull out the trundle and of my day bed and a mouse had like dragged itself onto the trundle or something I, it's a very faint memory I don't even know exactly how that mouse on the glue board got on but she pulled it out and there was this dead mouse oh, no. where she was going <laughs> to be sleeping so I was like this is all and I'm thinking my oh my gosh she's gonna go tell everybody like this how embarrassing she didn't tell anybody and you know but it it just it's like that kind of stuff like who has to worry <laughs> about that you know but that's that's just I mean and that's not to say that like her home itself was fine like my mom was very very clean and she was actually you know decorated and gave you know we had nice rooms and everything but um you know we lived in a shitty rental house right that's pretty much why um and then at the age of 16 um you met your high school sweetheart yeah um so tell us about you know that relationship and how it began um okay so when I was 16 I met my son's dad, Everett, and um, he was, back then it wasn't such a big deal. He was 19, um, and we met, uh, like, in a Taco Bell parking lot or something stupid, <laughs> and um, I had, you know, it got serious very, very fast. And this um, was your first relationship? Well, I had a relationship before him. Mm -hmm. um, it was a year long before him, and it wasn't like a sexual relationship or anything, but it was a very it was um you know we were quote unquote in love you know mm -hmm. and um he yeah so but you know we split up and um when I met Everett he was had already was living on his own like he he had a rough upbringing um way made my upbringing look like squeaky like, clean yeah. like yes he, he, and uh he had a very rough upbringing he lived on his own and um had been living on his own since like 15 like a long time he was like, mm -hmm. like a couch surfer okay so um we started dating and I think he again like really attached himself into my home my, my family my mom adored him and he um he would like sp start spending that at our house and stuff and uh, my mom allowed it which now she's like she just can't even believe it of course but um because I, I mean I'm like mom what were you thinking I would never let Jasmine ever <laughs> but never um because that it would have been right around I mean, Jasmine's 15 I was 16 so mm -hmm. almost same age, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so anyway um he, very quickly he integrated into our family and very quickly um our relationship got very serious and um we uh, within I guess when I was about 17 17 and a half somewhere around there he uh got involved in a it, it was an insurance business that did financial services, but it was like a multi-level marketing and he did very well. And I, my plan after high school was to go to college. I wanted to be a therapist or I wanted to go, I was going to major in psychology and do something. Mm -hmm. And he was doing well, but there was this whole back end of the business that he needed help with that. It's like, he couldn't stay at the pace he was st or go at the pace he wanted to go without having help. Mm -hmm. So he convinced me to, 
I had gone to college for a year and I had worked full time uh, for a property management company as a leasing agent. I was doing pretty well uh, as an 18 year old. And he convinced me to, by the time I was like 19, to leave my job and to go into business with him. And he was, he said, you can always go back to college. Let's just, let's make the money and go back to college later. It will always be there. And so I was like, okay, you know, and I could see that there was a lot of potential with this company and there was, and there definitely was. Cause when second I came on board, it went through the roof. I mean, no, it's very hard to make money in these companies. This opportunity, like for some reason, it was like that whole, um, what, what do they say? It's like lightning in a bottle. It mm-hmm. was just for it, the perfect time. The per, I don't know how it all occurred, but by the time we were, and this would have been, this was the nineties. So by the time we were, um, I think you were we like got, 20, right? I was 20 like when we got married and he was, he was 23. I was 20 when we got married. We were already making on the cusp of six, again, the nineties, we got married in 99, mm-hmm. the cusp of six figures. Um, by the time Jordan was born in I was 23 and he was born in 2002. We were making well over six figures wow, as age. young, mm-hmm. young in a multi-level marketing financial services company, young. And think about like what, like the older generation trusting my husband at the time with their retirement and like their insurance. It was just crazy. I don't. And so I was just running the back end and I worked a lot. Like I really worked a lot and I loved it. I really loved it. I was very passionate about the fact that I was good at what I was doing, you know, like running an office at such a young age and I got tons of accolades and praise for it. And, um, it really set me up actually later on in life. I was first bitter mm-hmm. that I had to quit college, but right, later on in life, that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then initially I was like, crap, like I gave up everything, but to be honest, um, I matured. I learned so much about the real world being in that business that sometimes it takes a lot longer to learn, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you, to have nav- that experience yeah because exiting that i felt heads and shoulders above a lot of my peers just in the way that i had already been working in you know in a in a um, industry that was as sophisticated and you know serious and with with people that made real money for quite a while and it started at such a young age so it did get it did level me up uh but um you know there was a, a quick fall <laughs> after the split and I had to find my way back, but, um, and but you yeah. bought your first home together, yeah. at a, you know, again, so, a young age. Yeah. We bought a home mm-hmm. when I was 23 in Rockland in a gated community. Um, and it was, um, you know, Rockland that's near Roseville. So it was like, we're the kind of home that like my friends in high school, my, my quote unquote rich friends lived in. <laughs> and so it was, cr- it was very surreal. And then I had Jordan, um, a couple months after we bought that home and, and it I think was kind of and I think yeah. you had come to realize that this relationship was more at a convenience more than anything yeah I mean we were really I don't know if I would describe it exactly yes it was convenient obviously but um we were really good friends mm-hmm. we still are just as, as good friends as you can be with your ex-husband we were really good friends, um, very close friends. I felt very bonded to him, made, uh, codependent for sure. Um, we were very good business partners. We worked well with each other. Um, we knew how to succeed together, and but we weren't. We did not have the kind of chemistry that a, a husband and wife should have. Um, it was a lot like a father daughter relationship, probably because. Um, I was never around relationships growing up, so I didn't really know what that looked like. And he was so far ahead in terms of like being independent, you know, and knowing how to take care of himself before I was that he had to show me everything, mm-hmm. how to do things and how to, you know, how to how to be a grown up basically. And so the dynamic of our marriage was very um, imbalanced. So that led to us having issues with you know intimacy and just there was just no chemistry but man could we I mean bestest of friends could make good money together we had everything else going for us made a beautiful baby mm-hmm. <laughs> so um yeah and, and so you had your son Jordan when you're when you're 24 years old um 20 yes 24 yeah mm-hmm was I 24 or was I 23 no I think I had him when I was 23 okay yeah we split when I was 24 yeah um and then yeah well, I had Jordan and then seven months later 
um, is when he asked for the divorce. Mm-hmm. And that was for, you know, it, obviously it ended up being the greatest gift because how my life has turned out since then. But at the time, my world was, I mean, literally crumbling in pieces around me. I mean, I had given up college. I had given up, I've, I'd given up everything. Everything. Like the dreams that you had. Everything. Mm-hmm. Everything. My whole life was this man. My whole life was this business. My whole life was wrapped up in all of this. And with one decision, and this was a long time ago. This was 20 years ago. So believe me when I tell you that we are all past it. But um, it is part of my story. With one decision, um, it was all taken away. You know, it was all taken away. And so it was, uh, I, you know, packed up. And, um, we, you know, in, in the, initially it was a little bit contentious because I didn't want to leave the house. Um, but then I realized it was, was, was going to be best for Jordan and I. So I, 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 packed, I packed a bag, packed a bag for Jordan. And we went to my mom's. And there I was back in my mom's home and um back to square one um from the beginning yeah but but i will say that initially um jordan's dad came to me and he said you know i fought for the marriage for a couple months Mm -hmm. um before really throwing in the towel but um he said i really want to do what your parents did and i would like for us to be friends and i would like for us to have an amicable you know co-parenting relationship which of course I wouldn't know how to do it any other way because that's all I know. Um, so there was always good intentions from the beginning for us to for us to parent in a civil, respectful way, which is which we went on to do. So yeah. yeah. And then so four months, you know, after your divorce, um, you met your current husband, Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us how this relationship kind of unfolded. So Mark and I met at the Powerhouse Pub in 2003 uh, in Folsom, and we were both had there for the first time um I had I I mean again like I'd given up my my youth for work and my marriage I mean and like happily you know happily gave it up like I didn't feel like I was missing anything um and so I was just starting to like understand what it meant to like go out and enjoy nightlife so there was this cover band playing um I was gonna say the name but now I can't think of the name um anyways cover band and I went with a couple of friends. He went with a couple of friends. Wonder Five. No, it wasn't. It wasn't Wonder Bread Five, but it was one of it was one like that. And Mark's gonna watch this later, and he's gonna be like, "It's fill in the blank. Band. It's that band." <laughs> anyway, so my one of my friends and one of his friends knew each other. Mm-hmm. So they're like, "Hey, haven't seen you." And then that, and then of course, then by default, I meet Mark. I get introduced to Mark, mm-hmm. and um, as we're leaving, as towards the end of the night, and as we're leaving, I had never in my life except for my first boyfriend and then my ex-husband ever given a boy my phone number ever in my life and um certainly did not know what this world was going to be like nor was i interested in like entering it so he he takes the approach of you know business of course and at the time he was doing loans and he was like well if you ever need to buy or sell a home like or (laughs) whatever like something like that and gives me his card and i go oh i have a card and I had made up these cards that have my name, my phone number, my email, which I just started a, an email, and um, my zodiac sign, Sagittarius. <laughs> and um, so, because it was one of the templates. So I was like, sure, I'll take that one. So anyway, I was like, I have a card. First person I ever gave that card to, probably the last, I don't think I gave another person that card. But I'm thinking, I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna meet people, I'm gonna meet friends. All of my friends had to be loyal, basically, to my ex-husband, because most of our friends worked with us. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if they were choosing him like they like him better, but it was like, it was just too awkward to be friends with us both. Um, I think I had maybe one or two that I continued to have friendships with, but so it was my stepsister and one friend that I went out with that night and I wanted to meet new friends. I wanted to, you know, I was embarking on a new life. And so I gave him my card. He gave me his, I did not expect to hear from him. I had never played this game before. And (laughs) two days later, um, he called me and I said, within the first five minutes of the phone conversation, because he didn't know anything about me. Mm-hmm. I said, I just have to be upfront with you. Um, and I will totally understand if you want to end this conversation, never talk again. Like it, it will not hurt my feelings. I said, I'm a single mom. I'm 24, by then I was 24. Mm-hmm. I'm living at home with my mom in Sacramento in a rundown condo. I'm unemployed and I'm going through a divorce. My son is one years old. I totally get it if you want to hang up now. And he like, I could hear like, silence like a little bit of a like and he goes I I actually really admire your honesty and I I obviously I was expecting him to be like well you know it was really nice meeting you but it probably won't work I I did not expect him to want to stay on the phone he was like I okay that that's a lot 
but I admire your honesty. And I, and I was just like, well, listen, I'd rather you find out now than later. And, you know, and I, honest to God, had no intentions on dating. I was still very new outside my marriage. Right. And um, we were on the phone for four hours that night. And we clearly had chemistry conversationally. And um, we um, had like our first date, like, I don't know, the next time I would go out whenever Jordan was at his dad's house. So, yeah. And then um, I really pumped the brakes on that. I, I just said, you know, I am just now getting over my marriage. Like, I am just now healing. And I don't, mm -hmm. I can't bring myself to like put my, get back in that position to have this happen to me again. Right. And he Little was always, fear. yeah. And mm -hmm. I was, and he was always like, well, what makes you think it's going to happen again? And I was like, well, I don't know. You know, we just met. <laughs> so, um, I kept him at arm's length for a really, really long time in every way you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And he, I think that was, he'd never been handled that way by a woman, by a girl. Like he'd never been like the, it's not resisted. Cause that's not like, oh, Mark's irresistible, but it's he, usually he got his way, you know, like mm -hmm. girls liked him. And, um, and I did like him a lot actually, but it's almost like, I don't, I, I need to like, stay low guarded you know because right. i don't know and, and figure so, out what i'm gonna do yeah and i know. had his child mm -hmm. so um fast forward a few months and we ended up okay we're going to i actually tried to break up with him but then he got he was like sad like on the verge of tears he's like why would you do this like why would you do it's like you know like this is you know for what reason like other than fear like mm -hmm. why would you and so i was like okay okay all right and so i'll hang in a little while longer so anyway long story short we end up, you know, becoming, you know, entering into this relationship. I ended up ending up introducing him to my son. And um, two years later, three years later, three years from the time we met yeah, around, years. we got married. Yeah. And um, so began the next 20 years. <laughs> yeah. So we're right now. And then so when, so after you got married, then you kind of um, worked your way up in another position as a property manager. Yeah. Um, and then you buy your first home in Anatolia, your rancho Cordova. Yeah. So I, right after I got married, I was promoted. I, I this whole time, once, once, um, Jordan's dad and I split up, I obviously had to go find a job and go back to work. And so, um, and, and uh, I, my girlfriend was managing an, she had stayed in property management from when we were teenagers. She was managing an apartment complex in El Dorado Hills. And she needed an assistant manager. So she asked me if I wanted the job because she knew I was looking, I needed to work and the job came with a free apartment. And so this, and so I said, yes, please, I'll take it. And so I took the job. And um, so I ended up working as an assistant manager for the next few years. It, it kind of coincided with the time Mark and I were dating. And then when, when we got married was right around the time she was actually getting promoted I believe she was either getting promoted or she was leaving the company for a better position. And I, I was promoted then into her position. So I started working as a property manager, um, which not my finest work, but it's like, a, yeah, that's all I'll say about that. But. <laughs> and so life was, you know, really, you know, it was great. You were happy. And yeah. then life kind of turned around. So, you know, life turned around for you in many positive ways. But then out of the blue, your physical health took like a turn for the worse. Yeah. Um, and you had, you know, been at work one day and just started to notice your legs were getting weak and you thought maybe, oh, I'm, you know, I'm probably just sore from working out the gym. You know, mm -hmm. what kind of happened after, at that point? So I was maybe, uh, I was like, I guess a year into, cause Mark and I had been married a year. Um, and I was a year into, um, that, that position and. I had just this, back then I worked out in the gym five days a week. I got up really early in the morning. I got there when they opened and um, I was very disciplined and dedicated. And um, I, I just thought I had weak, my, my, my leg muscles were weak. Like, mm -hmm. um, and uh, for a few days I just noticed them getting, and I just thought, oh, maybe I, maybe I overdid it. And right. okay, this is, that doesn't feel like how it would normally feel, but I was too busy to even, even pay attention. So, um, but it just got, they got weaker and weaker and weaker. And, um, then to the point where I went to get up from my chair one day and I, my legs wouldn't hold me. Like they, my knees literally buckled every time I tried to get up. And so then I, um, my assistant manager, the one who I'd hired to replace me, she was a leasing agent, put her in, promoted her to assistant. She and I were good friends. She's like, um, 
her name is Becca. For those who are listening, may know who she is. Um, she's still my very, very dear friend. She's my, I always say she's my kid's godmom. Um, she's 17 years older than me. And um, she said, Kim, this is not normal. It could be something neurological. We have right. to take you to emergency. So they wheeled me, they, since I couldn't walk. So she took you to the ER department. Yeah, they wheeled me yeah. out into the car in my desk chair, her and the, and the maintenance manager. <laughs> and they put me in the car. And then I went to the ER and I spent, I think, two days one night and two days two full days there and I got turned inside out with testing all the all the testing right so you get the, like, the MRI and the and the lumbar puncture and all the labs and the nerve conduction studies and the EMGs and there was some um there was some abnormalities in the tests yeah, I think you mentioned like the spinal tap yeah there was indicated. elevated protein in the spinal right. tap my um nerve conduction studies were highly irregular uh which means the nerves are not talking to the brain kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, they were saying this looks like MS. And so, you know, they were doing all the tests for that. But the one diagnostic test for MS is the MRI. And right. if you do not have lesions in your brain for the MRI or your spinal cord, you they cannot like rule it out. Yeah, mm -hmm. you cannot be given that diagnosis. And it's not as at that point, all I cared about was getting back literally getting back on my feet like this i don't have time for this shit. like i was just very like we just need to figure this out because i have a, I, i'm busy i have work yeah, yeah. and mm -hmm. so um it actually ended up they released me and they said you know follow up with your primary care we don't know what's wrong with you so it actually ended up going away and then i i completely forgot about it got back to work got back to my life by that time jordan was five um, mark and i had been married a year we hadn't gotten pregnant with jasmine jasmine yet we hadn't even thought about that yet um and then um and then I did get pregnant with like a couple months later I we, I didn't end up getting pregnant with her and um that's when it got real that that's when like it really got real because it because when it right after I found out I was pregnant it came back but it came back in my arms and um I was writing at my desk with the pen and I could I lost my grip and I kept trying to pick up the pen and I couldn't pick it up and I had all this nerve pain shooting at my arm and weakness and I couldn't make a fist and so I went home that day call obviously called my doctor and they brought me in for an MRI and um or yeah they brought me in for an MRI without contracts because I was pregnant at that point but um and they just said like okay well we don't know what's wrong with you and again <laughs> and because you're pregnant we can't any treatment that we could try and give you we right. can't because you're pregnant yeah, it's too dangerous. so so yeah so that was like off and on for it was like this two weeks on two weeks off like i'd have symptoms for two weeks and then they would just sort of subside like they would just go mm -hmm. away and i was like oh they're gone and then two weeks off and then i would just do go about my business go about work whatever and then they'd come back and then they go away and then they come back it was like two weeks it was like a pattern because i was keeping track of it mm -hmm. and i said well i started to keep track of it after a while after, after i noticed that this was it was doing this weird thing and then it was literally you know two weeks on two weeks off so then is, but then it started those periods of re, well, reprieve started mm -hmm. getting shorter and shorter and then those little relapses started getting longer and so at that point I filed I resigned because I was missing so much work I mean my assistant manager was driving me to work she would come to my house after work and she would she was a single woman when her kids were older and she's and she was helping you with Jordan. Take She's care such Jordan. an amazing woman. Yeah, I just mm -hmm. have to say, like, I love her so much. She was my angel. Um, she would come to, she'd drive me home from work. She would make dinner for our family. She'd give him a bath. She'd make sure he got his homework done. She'd put him to bed. And then the next day, we'd, she'd get up and she'd get him ready for school and, like, help me get ready for work. And, like, we would drive, she'd drive me to work. And then I would just sit in my chair and I would dictate to her what to do. Right. Because I would, I didn't have a lot of, like, um, at that point I think it was mostly my arms because I couldn't like compute type and everything so um but I was walking so um then it then once it started migrating to my legs and so there's my arms and my legs were gone I I resigned oh I I, I, I mean yeah I resigned because I filed for temporary disability mm -hmm. and um just to get me through the rest of my pregnancy and to give me a little time to figure out what was going to happen next and so then, you, and then I think you said five months into your pregnancy, the symptoms disappeared. Five months into my pregnancy, mm -hmm. yep. So it was like two months after I resigned, if I would have just held on, <laughs> two months after I resigned, um, all of the uh, symptoms uh, were lifted. Like, and and the doctor told me, uh, um, he said, well, that's not uncommon for people with autoimmunity, because 
when your immune system is suppressed and naturally when you're pregnant it is because all right. everything's going to the baby um when your immune system is depressed or suppressed the body the the whatever condition this is if it's autoimmunity it doesn't have anything to attack because the immune system is not activated so it nor a lot of times it will go dormant so it's not surprising so i was like okay so are you saying i have an autoimmune condition and they're like you know most likely we just don't know what it is so whatever i don't care i'm feeling good so i went the rest of my pregnancy the remaining four months or whatever it was feeling amazing i i loved it i i was didn't have to, i wasn't working i was just getting ready you know for my Preparing baby for i was baby, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. i mean i was really wonderful and then um she was born and then a month to the day um a month to the actual day because she was born on june 5th 2008 and on july 5th 2008 it was the day after fourth of july it everything came back bad right. like really bad the arms the legs the hands the everything rushing back and i almost called i was i remember i was standing making a pot of coffee that's back before keurig's i remember i was making a <laughs> pot of coffee and um i felt my leak my knees buckle and so yeah. i made my i like was i grabbed on i made my way to the couch it's like it so, happened so quick that time and then boom, like laid out. And then I went to the the doc, I called my doctor and he said, go to the emergency room now. Mm-hmm. Um, this Now that you're not pregnant, we can, you know, Run turn you inside out basically. And, yeah. and so we did. And um, it was still nothing really, um, cl- it wasn't super clear. He was acknowledging this looks like MS to me. This is what MS looks like. Everything about what you say, all your, you know, but without symptoms, yeah. yeah with with without this positive mri i mm-hmm. i can't and i didn't care about the diagnosis i just wanted that just give me whatever is going to make me better i have a now i have a brand new baby right. and um so he i said okay so it looks like ms but it's not ms he goes no it's not and i said okay well if it's not ms then what could it be and he goes it, it can't be anything but ms and i go Okay, so it can't be anything but MS, but it looks like MS, but it's not MS. Tell me what it like. What what are you saying to me? What conversation are we even having right now? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And he he realized we were talking in circles, and the truth is, is it could be a million other things. But he was, you know, as wonderful as he was, and I will say he was wonderful. um, He was a resident. He didn't a have a lot of authority, and b I think that he was still new in neurology. I mean, you know, like to him there was he training you know? yeah he was looking for what do they say um if look for horses not zebras or something there's like a saying in medicine mm-hmm. so there was he wasn't looking at other differential diagnoses so so anyway so i just went home that day and i was frustrated and i just got online and i wasn't like a big internet person at that time when we were talking like 2008 mm-hmm. so i like made my way around google and was like looking for doctors that like I don't know, like reading reviews and stuff. And that's how I found Dr. Hasid, who's was my, has been my doctor up until just in June, he retired. Worst day of my life. <laughs> I'm just was, kidding. He, was he the one that prescribed you some steroids? Yeah. So okay. I went to see him mm-hmm. and he was highly recommended and he had his own practice in Davis Institute of, um, oh man, we'll end up closing it. So I don't remember the name, but Institute of something. Um, Oh man, now that's gonna bother me. Anyways, okay, so he had his own practice and he just said, well, you know, and I think with your own practice, it's a little bit different. Plus he's, you know, he was a very established neurologist with many years behind him. And he said, well, it can't hurt trying a trial of something. Let's, are you up for that? And I said, absolutely, like, <laughs> let's do it. Like, te- yeah. And so he said, well, let's do, let's do this. We can do a trial of steroids, do like some Solumedrol. Let's start with a drip. Come in like three days this week. We'll put you on an IV, and then I can you do some take-home stuff, and then we'll do. Um, there was something else too. Um, some some other some other. Um, it was Cort- Cortef is what he what he took what he sent home with me, mm-hmm. and then. Um, my gosh, I'm blanking on the other one, but there was something else he gave me, and with those two, I felt immediate an immediate difference i had strength and everything and he said well if you're responding to that then it is definitely autoimmunity because mm. what these meds do is they're suppressing your immune system you know that's what steroids do right. so and then now your body's not attacking itself so it's something so then anyway so he goes well do you want to try a trial of um copaxone which is an ms injection and i said yeah let's do it and so i did that i was on injectables for so he ended up diagnosed me with ms oh, i ended yeah, up okay. forming a little lesion in my brain on my left frontal lobe um but 
I even think he diagnosed me before he saw it. He goes, you know what? Sometimes lesions take years and years to develop. So that's not a hard no for in my book. So, um, so then, so then I was good. I was good for a couple years after that, I would say, and it was stable and he was amazing. And I'm sad that he retired. So, so at this point, like your health, you know, it's finally improving. Um, and you just really just want to move on from all of this and get back to life and begin working again. Yeah. Um, so then you had decided that you wanted to be a fashion stylist and become a wholesale wholesaler. So tell me a little about. Well, (laughs) it's funny now looking back on it. So like 2009, so we're talking like a year after treatment, um, a year after I was on my feet, um, I, um, I mean, it was made have even been months. I was like, I have got to work. You know, I cannot do this. I cannot stay at home and, and be a stay at home mom. And, um, I got to do something like, I don't need to be gone all the time. I didn't want to be gone all the time, but I have to do something, you know, I can't. And so in my, who I was back then is so very different from who I am now. Now I love being a mom. I love having, you know, being home with my kids. Like there's no place I'd rather be. And anybody who knows me well knows that. Like I'm, it's my favorite. I'm such a homebody, but back then I was not. And so um, I don't even know. I think I saw somebody on TV like doing this, these things called trunk shows. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I could do that. So I just did some research and I got um, licensed to be a, um, a buyer at the LA Fashion District. Well, a buyer, I guess, nationwide. But I was, so I went to, fa- to a, what do they call that? Um, where the, where you they open it up for you to buy like there's a couple times a year where they do that um, market market um, market week in LA I had my my license to buy and so you buy all these clothes at wholesale and back then jeans were really in if you think of like true religion and all oh, yeah. and all those jeans so I could buy and then um, at, at wholesale price and then just do a, a small not not as big of a markup as like the boutiques and department stores were doing but um, oh, just a little markup because I didn't have any overhead except for the cost of the clothes so I could afford to sell them cheaper so I was like okay well let me just go buy some clothes I'll set up some racks in my formal dining room and um and then I'll just book these trunk shows and people can shop and drink champagne I'll bring champagne and and it will be great and it was great it was so much fun but I made like no money like it was very you know first of all people were still having a hard time paying even the wholesale price of those jeans was was high like Mm -hmm. so to you know, back then paying 110 bucks for a pair of jeans, like it wasn't the response that you, so we were, what we ended up doing is we would sell a lot of like accessories and tops and stuff, but like the higher price items that you would make you money, right. like we were not. So we would end up discounting them and then end up selling them at cost. And so, so I was in and out of that really quick, but I ended up parlaying that little side, that little trunk show business into, um, fashion production and PR because we did some because i was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis we produced a couple fashion shows and to benefit the ms society and um i had my friend's model in it and i had i recruited some people to do hair and makeup like it was all this whole thing like in sacramento like i did and it was so much fun and everybody loved it and responded well to it and i just thought you know what there's a good little fashion community in sacramento i can um how about I um, become a PR person and represent these stylists that are like just out of like FITM, like Fashion Institute of right. Merchandising Technology, or uh, Merchandising and Fashion Institute Merchandising and Design. So, um, so then like I accumulated these clients who were uh, crazy enough to hire me, and um, then I partnered with a with my family photographer to like <laughs> do photo shoots, and he had a studio, and so. We had these big dreams of like being this company and um, God bless us. And so we ended up, but the one great thing we did was we um, p- produced the first very large fashion show in Sacramento, which was at the Memorial Auditorium in 2010. We produced the Tiana Vega fall or spring collection. Gosh, this was so long ago, but um, it was so beautiful. That show was so beautiful. It was, um, we got everything donated because it was it was to benefit a charity, not not MS, but um, Sweet Dreams Foundation, and 
it was beautiful lighting, beautiful staging, beautiful models, beautiful clothes, beautiful. I mean, everything was just, and I was like, I cannot believe I did this. Like, how did I pull this off? And I think you had told me too, that's still to date the largest fashion show in Sacramento. I, that's what I'm told. Mm-hmm. Have, have there been others? I think we paved the way um, for others, but I, I, I have not, I don't know. I don't know if we we're the largest. We, I'm sure we were definitely the first to do it like that because most people did it in nightclubs. And so we were the mm-hmm. first to like, get a venue an actual like venue sacramento fashion week took off you know they were already like up and coming and i remember i was going to work on their project i was going to partner with them on that following year um but my health took a turn after that after that show at the memorial auditorium and they ended up um showcasing at uh, sacramento fashion week ended up showcasing at memorial auditorium and then they ended up moving to a different venue and they they got i think the fashion scene in sacramento Mm -hmm. was really blowing up at that time so we were just harnessing it sac sacramento fashion week the producers there were harnessing it so it was really an awesome time but unfortunately i was only able to be a part of it for for a short time before um i experienced the largest relapse of my life to date right because i think you said you had done this job from 2008 to 2010 Mm -hmm. and just kind of worked yourself to death yeah yeah so i I just never recovered. It's like I went home and I thought, I'm just gonna, cause I worked so hard to get to do that show. Like my adrenals were working overtime. And I remember even my doctor saying, Kim, you've got to slow down. You're gonna, this is gonna come back and bite you. And um, it did. And I went home, you know, that night feeling so good about the show and just being so relieved. And I I feel like, I don't think I got out of bed for, I mean, it was many, many days. Right. And, um, and I had to pull out of sack fat. I was so upset because I was like, dang it, man. I was just like, oh, getting started again. had it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it, I had done some damage to myself, like clearly done some damage to myself because at that point it was like, I needed meds to like, even like get out of bed. So it was from, <clears throat> it was from like August of 2010 till November I it was a very long relapse like to to get me um like moving normally and um do you want me to continue on with yeah okay yeah so then in November I like found my legs and like I was like okay here I am and then I just could but I could feel like things had shifted things had changed I was really dependent on sleeping a certain amount and I was really dependent on like I couldn't manipulate my body the same way as I was used to and I needed like IVs and and it was just I had done some damage but so I and all of my um glory decided to go out with a bang and just took my social life as push it as far as I could take it and I just really partied hard not like partied hard like I was telling you in the pre-interview it wasn't like I was drinking a ton and like doing crazy stuff it wasn't that it's just that I wanted to be anywhere but home to not think about where I was constantly mm-hmm. reminded how bad I felt when I was out because that maybe that was my prime or whatever and I was looking my best and feeling my best and feeling on top of the world because of what I'd accomplished and I'd met all these new people I was getting I was needed that validation that um I don't know like I was being I was probably being validated a lot by the way I looked, I'm sure, the way I dressed and stuff, but um, I don't know, any validation was val- enough validation because right. I wasn't working. So before it was like the currency for me was like the accolades I got on my work and it's okay, I can't do that anymore. So so I need to look for a new form of currency now. and now it's going to be people, you know, telling. That's why when um, when people are so attention-seeking with, their looks on wherever Instagram whatever in the club I don't you know I get it because I was one of those people so it's like you'll take it how you can get it that's all for part one of this episode the story continues in part two and is available now